Welcome to Cybercast, decoding today's cyber issues. I'm your host, Kate Macri. In today's episode, we're diving into the fusion of cybersecurity and national security. This fusion is impacting intelligence gathering in some pretty big ways. Joining me today is Laura Galante, Director of the Cyber Threat Intelligence Center at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, or ODNI. Just a decade ago, cybersecurity was thought of as primarily an IT or information security issue. But now the United States and their foreign adversaries are weaponizing cybersecurity in the intelligence realm. Disinformation abounds. Major heists are planned and executed within the cyber realm. Sometimes cyber attacks devastate critical infrastructure and cyber defenders don't know where to start or who to trust. A big theme of today's episode is the idea that it isn't just a government or private sector issue. Cybersecurity also can't be siloed to specific departments or specialized agencies such as ODNI. Galante has all the details and more on some of the biggest misconceptions around the relationships between cybersecurity, national security, and the intelligence community. So, Laura, to start off our conversation today, can you tell me a little bit about your office and your role, just to give us an overview for the context of the conversation? Yes. Hi, Kate. Thanks for having me. So a little bit about the organization that I lead. Um, I'm the cyber executive, and then I'm also the director of the Cyber Threat Intelligence Integration Center. And what this is, is it's the cyber center here in the office of the director of national intelligence, ODNI. And what we're doing is we have a combination of analytic integration work that we do across the intelligence community, which I'll get to in a second. And then we also do mission integration work. And the, the way to think about that is from ODNI's perch, um, looking out across the 18 different uh, agencies that make up the intelligence community, we're looking at how cyber intelligence can be better shared, unified, and used both for cyber response, so in responding to a cyber incident, and then also how are we able to harmonize all of these different efforts across the community so that we can figure out where we need to invest, where we need to spend time and effort to deconflict or coordinate on some of those efforts, and where we can make sure that we have the most unified intelligence picture around cyber threats um, in the most real-time and comprehensive way. So it's a big mission. Um, it has that analytic piece to it. We want to make sure that we're understanding and able to analyze what cyber threats are coming into both the U.S., our partners, um, the private sector, and then also how are we able to really manage the resources, how do we have the right strategy in place to be able to really effectively scale out how the intelligence community uh, utilizes cyber intelligence and more broadly utilizes this domain effectively. Gotcha. So ODNI Director Avril Haynes recently said the lines between cybersecurity and national security are blurring. Can you expound on this and how you interpret this? And can you talk a little about how organizations should view their part in helping secure the nation from cyber and national security threats. So it's certainly the case, Kate, that 
cybersecurity and national security are fusing more and more. And just to give a little perspective, you know, when you think about even just 10, 12 years ago, when we talked about cyber threats and cybersecurity, it was still in a lens of information technology, like IT issues and InfoSec, right? It was sort of, oh, the IT department has a problem that we need to go figure out. It wasn't how is the Chinese military going after intellectual property theft at my company, for example. Like that development of the national security lens and how states, their intelligence services, their militaries are utilizing this domain has really come into stark relief over the last 10, 12 years here. And what that's meant is within government, within the intelligence community, but also in the private sector and also with our partners and allies, we needed to take a step back and say, the level of threat that, that cyber adversaries can pose is one that we've got to really question. Do we have the right aperture? Do we have the right visibility into the threat? Do we have the right mechanisms organizationally? Like, do we have the right agencies? Do we have the right resources aligned to them to be able to really develop a collective defense picture, right? Because national security is about defining how you look at threats and then how you build um, defensive measures and in, in, in appropriate ways to handle them. So we've been doing that in cybersecurity here for some time, but that's a build and, it, and, it, and it's taken time. And it's also, you know, it, it's not like adversaries have just waited around while the US government and the private sector has built up the, the apparatus to really handle cyber threats. In fact, um, our adversaries, whether it's you know the, the, the PRC or whether it's threats out of, out, of, out of Russia or some of these more sophisticated criminal enterprises that we've seen uh, have a serious growth spurt over the last couple of years, you know, we, those adversaries have gotten more sophisticated. The way that they've used the domain has gone from, you know, espionage to much larger existential um, threats around critical infrastructure, influence operations, um, going after and perpetrating some of the largest bank heists of all time. They've happened in the cyber domain, right? So this has really gone, you know, just to circle back from an IT issue to a national security issue in a pretty short span of time and, and building the apparatus behind that to have an effective uh, collective defense is what we continue to, to develop. Gotcha. As a, as a follow-up question to that, what would you say are some misconceptions around this concept that you've noticed in your work? So I think um, one of the one of the difficulties in this domain is that there's no one entity, whether it's the U.S. government, whether it's the private sector, whether it's technology companies um, in the U.S. or otherwise, there, there's no one uh, entity that kind of owns the domain or dominates the domain. It's one that requires, just because of the nature of the internet, a really collaborative approach to even understand what the threats are. You know, you, you put this analogous, and this might be you know kind of basic, but just to put it, the analogy out there to another domain, when you're thinking about the sea, right, you're you're able to understand. All right, there's only so many there's only so many countries that are going to be able to have a massive navy that are going to, um, you know, have submarine force. We understand how to track submarines, right? You can think about kind of the apparatus that's been created to look at the sea as a domain, and that's obviously been a long-standing development, but. The cyber domain's one where even getting the map, if you will, of 
how the different infrastructure, everything from sort of, you know, the pipes that make up the real backbone of the internet up to the to the highest layer, kind of the enterprise and, and tech layer at the top here. Like even mapping out all of those different dependencies is, is really hard to conceive of. And then it's really hard to be able to track threats across that. And we've collectively kind of gotten better and better at doing that, but it's a team sport. Um, and it's one where if, if you don't have good visibility into a significant part of the internet, you're going to be missing um, either threats, changes in the landscape that are going to constrain how, how you act, um, and you're going to miss the ability to really define at a national level how you're going to use and defend um, that space. So all that to say, it, it just it takes a very broad mindset to think about how wide the threat space is, and it takes a very collaborative approach in the public and private domain um, to, to really try to scope the problem and scope the threat. Yeah. So speaking of collaboration, it sounds like that's a really big theme here. So one of my questions for you is ODNI participates in a lot of information sharing with other federal agencies such as NSA, CISA, FBI, and allied partners. How critical is this step to thwarting cyber threats? And can you talk about the challenges and the successes that you've had in this area, especially given how important it is, like you were just describing? Yes, Kate, I think it, it's a great question because it it does sort of come to the heart of the matter, which is how does how does the U.S. intelligence community and you know I'm speaking here from this kind of ODNI standpoint, but I, I think this question is one that that goes across the IC. How do we have the right partnerships that allow us the agility to see what threats are coming? handle them, uh, figure out how to defend against them. And then also, how do we have the right mechanisms within the sprawling intelligence community, whether it's between FBI, CIA, NSA, um, and then CISA, you know, not part of the um, IC, but CISA sitting there under DHS is, is a critical piece to what scaling network defense looks like for the government and for the countries, right? So how do you have the right mechanisms and collaborative um, relationships and and systems between the different agencies. So that's one of the things that we work on quite often. So let me give you an example of, of kind of how I think that's working really well. Over the last several years, there's been just an increased need to find ways to have relationships between a lot of the commercial cybersecurity vendors um, and technology companies who are frequently on the edge of seeing threat activity. As you and your, your audience can imagine, you know, it's someone who is on every, you know, many computers across the globe because of the software that they sell or the hardware that they provide, they're going to get a look at scale of what's hitting their own software and their client's software, potentially before the government may, right? So being able to get those indications and warnings, the canary in the coal mine, um, of what sorts of threats or new tactics that are being used, right? Um, getting getting that insight earlier and doing it in a way that's, that's two-way, 
right? So where a tech company is able to say, here's a new tactic that, that a threat actor is using, if they're able to have a conversation um, with the intelligence community, whether it's through the Cyber Collaboration Center up at NSA, um, or whether it's with FBI investigators, if they're able to have the conversation and say, look, we're seeing this new tactic, um, what else from, from your side, I see, might be useful in understanding how that tactic might be used, who might be behind it, what should we scale to, what is an effective way for us to mitigate this. That conversation is, is happening so much more often than it had in the past. And it's really a testament to the work that both IC agencies are doing in thinking about how you partner outside. Um, and then also how agencies are thinking, look, this is not a problem that can be solved by just increasing our collection or improving our analysis. This is about finding the right mechanisms, partners, um, use cases to really be able to have that back and forth conversation that scales some of the technical problems and, and, and mitigation measures that are needed to really improve larger cybersecurity. Yeah, absolutely. So given the rapid pace of cyber attacks, how has this changed how ODNI collects cyber and national security intelligence? And what would you say are some of the challenges in this area, especially going forward into 2023? So... I think big picture, as you consider out, not just into 2023, but into the next couple of years, there's a, there's a couple big trends that, that we're um, collectively finding ways to, to deal with. The first is the larger trend of moving beyond, um, countries moving beyond U.S. technology as the basis for a lot of their uh interaction with the internet. Well, let me, let me rephrase this a little bit. So one of, the, one of the major trends that we're seeing is a change in the globe's dependency on US technology. While the Microsoft suite might be the most common you know, enterprise technology out there, increasingly other technology companies and firms, whether they're coming out of China, whether they're coming out of Russia, whether they're coming out of another country, are, are frequently becoming enterprise, IT, social media, other technology platforms that users across the globe can choose. And that is, it, it's a natural kind of consequence of what had been a very US dominated technology sector across the globe for a very long time that is becoming far more balkanized in terms of what companies come out of what countries that are providing technology across the globe. That changes, um, the IC and the broader cybersecurity communities uh, understanding of what the threat surface is, right? If we're seeing more, you know, TikTok's a very visual example of this, right? It's, it's a, it's a China-based company. Um, it has a wide usership across the world. You know, it is not, it, it's, it's not a technology or a company that would have had the same um, sort of relationships in the past or kind of, um, touch points that a U.S. company had. And in thinking through how technology goes to a broader scale across the globe is something that we've, we're have we collectively considering what the, what the downstream and upstream effects of that will be. Um, another big trend here is where states are using, where they are using cyber operations to conduct 
their affairs, whether they're political, whether they're espionage, whether they're military, they are frequently falling below the the threshold that you would that you would uh, identify for responding with force, right? They're sort of falling short of short of a, a warlike action, and where we see those activities, it is frequently a gray area where collectively countries need to think about how do you respond? What do you do, right? It, it's not as clear as um, in the kinetic space, in the real world space, right? Where, where a missile would have gone over uh, the border and hit another country. Okay, we, we have response mechanisms for that. Frequently in cyber domain, that's a much grayer area and it's, it's increasingly gray. And I'll give you an example recently from this summer that we've worked through in, in, in thinking about response. And it was um, the Iranian state attack on Albania's networks, on the government of Albania's networks, which was attributed um, back in September. And I believe there were 34 countries that joined the U.S. in attributing or condemning Iranian activity against a NATO member against Albania. In that case, we really needed to consider, you know, what does this, what does collective defense look like when an adversary has gone and taken down an alliance networks, uh, an alliance members network, uh, in this case, Albania, what's the appropriate response? How do we um, communicate that that's unacceptable? That this is, this is not something that um, NATO members will permit. So we are continuing to, to work through um, collectively how you respond to the different shades and different varieties of cyber threats, cyber operations, and network attacks that are happening and will continue to happen. Gotcha. So I feel like you touched on this a little bit, but now that we have seen how ransomware has really become a major cyber trend over the last couple of years, do you see that continuing into 2023? Or what do you see as some of the biggest cyber landscape trends, especially as they overlap with national security? And how do you think organizations should be preparing for them? So cyber criminal activity has has long plagued companies. It's long plagued um, cybersecurity vendors. This has been an issue for a long time, banks, et cetera. What ransomware and the rise of ransomware over the last few years to me signifies is more around the people and organizations that are conducting these attacks. And and one of the things that I think will really help us um, scope this continued scourge and problem um, across the IC and across the U.S. is to think of this as what it is, which is a transnational criminal uh, enterprise effort to go after you know, a variety of civilian targets, whether it was um, the recent common spirit uh, uh, ransomware attack on, I think it was the fourth largest hospital chain in the U.S. Um, back in September, or some of the school districts that have really had to deal with ransomware attacks over the last um, couple months and even through the, the beginning of the school year. These are, these are not um, you know, these are not banks, these are not targets, these are not retailers who have been dealing with cyber attacks at scale like this um, and, and, and having to deal with really a, a you know, criminal gang behind this, trying to deal with a, a massive issue on their networks that is disrupting their operations, affecting students, affecting patients, et cetera. We have not seen a threat like that in the criminal cyberspace for a long time. 
um, into the scale. So this will be a persistent issue um, that we have to figure out how to unpack. And I think the more we can the more we can look behind this um, in terms of the networks and the people behind it, which has so frequently been key to really understanding how states and others are using cyberspace, the more we can uplift to understand who's behind this. Um, and how are they doing what they're doing at scale? And what are the different um, levers in the in the kind of financial ecosystem, especially around crypto, uh, that are getting used to perpetrate the scale of attacks, the scale of ransomware attacks that we've seen in the last couple of years? The more we can unpack that and, and really pinpoint where to sanction, where to take policy actions, et cetera, I think the faster we'll be able to, to, to really knock this, this huge problem out. Um, but you know, I'd, I'd point to a recent example, which was the sanction of um, you know tornado cash it's one of the the mixers that was used uh, by different cryptocurrency uh, companies to to launder the money if you will and you know it's, it's that kind of targeted approach where we're need, going to need to think through where are the different pain points in the system that are allowing criminal enterprises to have a field day on US companies and on other companies across the world um, and other targets across the world where are we able to, to really start um, batting this down and, and inflicting and raising costs um, across the board to change the, the calculus behind a lot of the, the people and enterprises that are, that are behind these ransomware attacks. Sure. And as a follow-up question to that, it seems like you guys aren't lacking for information and intelligence around these types of cyber threats and cyber attacks. It seems like the crux of the issue is, you know, knowing the right person to talk to, the right partner, whoever, at the right time. Would you say that's a correct analysis of what we're seeing across cyber right now? You know, I, I, I think the more victims of cyber attacks, whether it's a ransomware attack, whether it's, um, you know, espionage on a corporate network, et cetera, the more that those um, that victims come forward and able to share with with um, whether it's law enforcement or with the intelligence community, depending on the, the type of attack and depending on um, the victim, it, that is very useful from an intelligence standpoint mm -hmm. because it starts again to, to, to add to the body of um collection and analysis that we have around these different threat groups, around these different adversaries. So it is always useful um, and it's always helpful when, when victims are able to come forward and talk about the forensics of, of the attack that they had. Um, so, so that goes without saying, but the, the, the point that you're making, Kate, around um, who do you contact and, and how do you how do you report your incident is right. one, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's slightly complicated in that the defense industrial base, you know, has in defense contractors have a different set of legal obligations and contract obligations. Um, you know, CISA under DHS is in their rulemaking period that will, um, when it's over in the next couple of years here, will will have clarity on, um, on how incidents are reported to CISA, cybersecurity incidents are reported to CISA pursuant to the legislation that passed earlier this spring. So uh, all this to say, uh, it, it, I, I can't give you a perfect answer because there isn't a, a one-stop shop on, on where victims report to, but I think that clarity is something that's getting worked through. And the answer right now is there are multiple doors um, in the intelligence community, in the law enforcement community, and then on the, um, on the, on the federal cybersecurity side as well that allow 
allow companies uh, and other entities to report their incidents. And then on the, on the inside, um, to be able to coordinate the intelligence that we get from these adversary operations, from the malware that was used, for example, we're able to coordinate that within the IC and within the rest of the community to make sure we're, we're getting the best picture of, of, the, uh, of what the threat looks like. Absolutely. So before we finish up, I have one more question for you. And this is around the topic of women in national security roles and cybersecurity, which has been a pretty big conversation in federal IT lately. And it's something that WCIO Media and Research is trying to explore more um, with our women tech leaders working group. But I'm interested in your take on how to get more women into national security jobs like yours and what your experience has been like in this field and what kind of advice you would have for women pursuing um, similar positions. Yeah, this is a hard question because I think there's, um, right now, we're in a moment where a lot of the uh, leadership in the government on, on cyber intelligence, cyber policy, et cetera, actually has women in, in place, right? And Neuberger's, the NSC's, uh, you know, Deputy National Security Advisor on, on cyber and emerging tech issues. Jen Easterly is leading CISA. Uh, you have, you know, a bunch of very visible female leaders in, in cybersecurity, which is incredible. Um, and it's really at odds, actually, with my experience, um, frequently being the only women in the room um, on, on cyber and on cyber intelligence issues for for a long time. So uh, I think that's a, a really marked change and it's exciting. Um, I think the other piece too is some of this is, is having people at the table. And I know that's cliche, but the more, the more we're able to um, build the network of, you know, it doesn't just have to be in, in, in cyber in this domain. It's, it's more broadly, the more you're able to build the network that kind of just connects people, um, in this case, women to each other across different agencies, across the public and private sector to deal with substantively, what is, what is the, the work that you're doing in your mission, whether you're out on a, in a cybersecurity company or you're out at a tech company or you're an NGO, um, or in academia, is there a, a substantive issue that you're really gripping onto and want to find a group of like-minded people to kind of lead and think through how you take some action on a specific issue. I think the more we're able to, um, you know, look to each other and promote women who are doing that and driving mission and build coalitions around that, the more effective, um, the, the more effective and more experience uh, women will have in this space and in leading kind of cross-agency and, and cross-domain matrix teams, pick your favorite way to say that. But I think where, where you know, a lot of women have had, had success that I've seen in the national security space is where they've been able to, to grab an initiative, um, to grab a, a work stream. Sometimes it's, it's the work that no one else wanted to do. Sometimes it's the really hard problem um, that, that needs some serious organizing and muscle and, and elbow grease put behind it in a coalition that looks a little different or feels different. But the more we can get um, women that kind of experience in building disparate teams to take on hard problems, the more we're going to see um, women not as an anomaly, but as, as really kind of a feature of the system within national security. Data mapping and data visibility are key first steps to a robust cybersecurity and zero trust strategy. This isn't a new concept. CISA talks about it all the time. But 
it is increasingly critical for the offices like Galante's because data mapping and visibility are also the first steps to strong partnerships with other information gatherers and cyber defenders. Industry can also play a crucial role in helping government advance zero trust strategies for better cybersecurity. So stay tuned for more stories in 2023 about how industry and government are working together to address cybersecurity risks and improve cybersecurity postures overall. For deep analysis and insider perspectives on what's trending in federal cybersecurity, subscribe to and follow Cybercast and visit our website at govciomedia.com. I'm your host, Kate Macri. Thank you for listening. Cybercast, along with GovCast and HealthCast, is a production of GovCIO Media and Research. For more podcasts and to check out the other shows, head to govciomedia.com. Watch out for new episodes released every Tuesday and Wednesday across our shows. You can follow all of them in your favorite podcast platform, And if you like what you heard, make sure to let us know by leaving a review. And if you have any topics you think we should look into, contact us at newsletter at gcio.com. 